Good morning. It's good to see all of you here today. We want to thank you for coming and joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek, and we are truly glad that you're here, all of you who are in the room, all of you who are joining us online. We're grateful uh, for your attendance this morning. Well, the Christmas season is officially upon us, and our uh, beautiful decorations here in the sanctuary uh, alert us to that, and our preparations for Christmas at Ivy Creek alert us to the fact that we are there. Thanksgiving is now over, and so we're all ready for Christmas, right? How many of you got your Christmas tree up already? Oh, good, good portion. Yeah, some of you still got some work to do. Yeah, I got some late, late arrivals there. Um, the Christmas season is just one of those, I, I, I truly love it. Uh, some people get a little frustrated that it seems to start earlier every year. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with it. I, I think it's good because it focuses our attention on Christ. I think every time that the word Christmas comes out of someone's mouth, whether they actually realize it or not, they are proclaiming Christ, and it gives us an opportunity to proclaim to them the real meaning of Christmas. And so uh, Christmas is a wonderful time of year, and it's a wonderful time for the people of God to be able to share with others who may not be believers exactly what Christmas is all about. And so I would encourage you to do that and embrace it and, uh, and just enjoy that. I want us to, this morning, I want us to focus our attention on the Lord and on His coming. And I want us to do that if you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope that you do, turning with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 10. You know, while, uh, and while you're turning there, I asked for a show of hands earlier. Some of you are sitting with your families in there, so I'm just going to ask, how many of you remember the birth of someone specific and, and special in your life. Maybe it was your child, maybe it was a, a niece or a nephew, maybe it was someone else, but you, were, you remember that birth. Go ahead and just raise your hand. All right, if you didn't raise your hand, do it anyways, because somewhere along the line, you remember the birth of someone in your life that was special to you. Now, let me ask you this question. I, well, let me say, I, I remember four very specific ones, and I remember them all very distinctly. And, uh, and, and was just contemplating them this week. But let me ask you this question. How many of you, by show of hands, remember your own birth? <laughs> now, some of, you, some of you say you remember your own birth. Okay, I, I hear that. Well, let me just say that, that doctors and researchers find that very few people have real significant memories prior to the age of two or three. And, and the, that there's just some kind of cognitive issue that goes on there. And those memories that we have primarily are informed by, by what other people tell us happened in those times. We may have some memories of when we're younger than two or three years old, but those memories are particularly in, informed by what others have told us took place at that particular moment, whether the testimony of parents or siblings or, or someone else. So while we may be very familiar with the circumstances surrounding uh, someone else's birth, the truth is most of us have no real familiarity with our own births. And the reason all of that kind of came to my mind this week is because at Christmas time, when we think about the birth of Christ, our natural response is to turn to the Gospels. And it's to talk, turn to the Gospel of Luke, and we hear the story from Mary's perspective. Or we turn to the Gospel of Matthew, and we kind of hear the story about it from 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 uh, from. Joseph's perspective, who, who was not expecting to find out that Mary was pregnant and how he was, he was planning to put her away and not, and not marry her, but the angel of the Lord came to him. And, and we might even turn to the, to the perspective of the shepherds who were out in the fields abiding over their flocks by night when the angel came to announce to them that a Savior had been born. 
Maybe we could talk about it from the perspective of the Magi, or, or even sometimes we even look at it from the perspective of King Herod, who, who did not receive the news of there being a king born to the Jews well and decided to have Jesus put to death. We could come at it from all of those different angles, and, and, and I, all of those are profitable. But today what I want us to consider is what was going on in the mind of our Lord himself when he was being born. You see, though Jesus was was like us in that he was born of flesh and blood, just like we are, he was fully human, just as we are, he is also very different from us in that he is eternal God. And, And that's what allows him to be able to provide for us his testimony regarding his own birth. In fact, actually, we find out what was on the Lord's mind when we read the text that was going to be before us this morning in Hebrews chapter 10. It's a, it's a passage that's based upon a psalm in Psalm 40. And I want us to read this together and I want us to think this morning about the Christmas story according to Jesus and how he would present the entire message to us. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 10 of Hebrews and read down through verse 10 just to establish the context. And then we'll come back and we'll focus in on verses 5 through 7. Hear the word of God this morning. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, that is Jesus, when he came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we do thank you for this day that you've given to us to come into your house, to be able to sing songs of praise and worship to you, to be able to offer our prayers to you, but also to be able to open your word and to read it and to study it and to have your Holy Spirit help us in understanding it. Now, I pray that that's exactly what will occur today. Help us, give us us spiritual minds and ears and open hearts to be able to truly understand that which is revealed to us in your Holy Scriptures. And then I pray that that word would find its deep root within our heart and that it would produce change within us, that it would produce fruit, spiritual fruit, that we would be changed into the likeness of Jesus, who himself said, I have come to do your will, O God. I pray that this would be our prayer and our testimony 
In Christ's name, amen. Now, the theme of the book of Hebrews can pretty much be summarized uh, in just a few words. It is, the theme of the book is the supremacy of Christ. And the opening verses of that book actually testify to that theme. The first three verses of Hebrews 1 read this way. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. From, from that launching point at the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 1, the author goes on to exalt the superiority of Jesus. He, he's superior to the angels. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to Joshua and to the Levitical high priesthood. And furthermore, the author makes a contrast between the tabernacle and its sacrifices to the ultimate and final sacrifice of Christ himself. And it's really in that portion of the book of Hebrews that the portion that describes how the sacrifice of Christ is, is perfect and is the final sacrifice for sins that ultimately made the, the Jewish practice of, of sacrificing bulls and sheep and goats obsolete. It's that section that we find the words of the text that I just read for you earlier from Hebrews 10. And these are words that were, as I said, originally written by David himself in Psalm 40. But ultimately, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the words of Psalm 40 that David wrote a thousand years earlier are attributed to Christ. And it is here, specifically in verses 5 through 7 of Hebrews 10, that we recognize how appropriate this passage is for us to consider at Christmas. You see, in, in these verses, we find what was going on in the mind of our Lord himself as he was being born. Verse 5 begins, Therefore, when he, that is Christ, came into the world, he said. Now, let's stop there, and because and, we'll come back to what he said in just a moment. But these verses kind of pull back the, the, the curtain for us, if we will, to see what was going on behind the scenes what the conversation was that occurred between the eternal Father and the eternal Son as Jesus condescended to come and be born of the Virgin Mary. And as I said, we'll get to what he said in a minute, but before we do, I just want you to consider the importance of those words. What they tell us is that what follows is, is attributed to Christ as, or as some of your versions will say, when he came into the world. So by telling us that, what we must infer by necessity is that the Lord Jesus Christ existed before he ever came into this world as a baby in the manger. In fact, note the first point. I'm going to give you some hooks this morning. The first hook that I want you to see is this. It's, it's pre-existence. And what that tells us is that Bethlehem was not the beginning for Jesus. This, this passage opens for us the preexistence of Christ and tells us that Bethlehem was not the beginning. Understand this, our Lord did not come into existence in Bethlehem. As the second person of the Trinity, he had no beginning. From everlasting to everlasting, he has been, he is, and he always will be God. If you'll recall, 
It was his declaration in John chapter 8, verse 58, where he said this. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And at those words, all of those Jews there began to pick up stones to throw at him and to kill at him. Why? Because they recognized when he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am, he was, he was attributing to himself this whole idea of divinity, of, of pre-existence. And they understood that he was declaring that he was God. Furthermore, the fact that Bethlehem was not the beginning for Christ is made evident from the most often quoted verse in all the New Testament, perhaps the entire Bible. We know it is John 3, 16. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he what? gave his only begotten son, which means he gave something that he already had. The same idea is brought up in, in the epistle of John, the first epistle of John in, in 1 John 4 verse 9, where he writes this, in this the love of God was manifested toward us that God has sent his only begotten son in the world that we might live through him. Listen, the fact that God gave the fact that God sent his son tells us that his son was already in existence. John 1.1 tells us that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And then just a few verses later, John equates the word with the incarnate Christ. And then he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So as we examine the scriptures, and and particularly as we look at this passage before us this morning, we recognize that it points us to the preexistence of our Lord before his birth in Bethlehem's manger. And as the Son of God, he existed with the Father long before he was ever conceived in Mary's womb. Now, Why is that important? Well, it's important because of the subsequent words that are attributed to Christ in this passage. Jesus goes on to say, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. I want us to consider those words more closely. But let me remind you that that this is a quotation, as I said, from Psalm 40. It's a psalm written by David a thousand years before the birth of Christ. But under the direction of the Holy Spirit, the author of Hebrews looks back on those words attributed and attributed them to Christ. We don't have an account anywhere in the Gospels where Jesus said these exact words, but that's not a problem for us, and I want to explain why. It's not a problem because as Jesus said would happen in John chapter 16, when the spirit of truth would come, he would do what? He would lead his disciples into all truth. This happens regularly throughout the writings of the New Testament where where various writers of the gospels and and of the epistles, they reflect upon the meaning of Jesus' life and death in light of what was written about him in the Old Testament. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus did, if you'll recall, with his two disciples on the road to Emmaus following his resurrection. 
He, he, he comes alongside them and they're dejected and sad and kicking the can down the road because they had really expected this Messiah to be the one who would usher in all of the promises of the Old Testament. And, and the Bible says that Jesus, beginning in the Old Testament, began to explain all of the scriptures to them in light of how he had fulfilled them. That's exactly what Jesus did. And what I want you to know, the reality of the Old Testament only makes sense and it makes perfect sense when we recognize that its fulfillment in Jesus according to what we read in the New Testament. I like the illustration that Alistair Begg uses. He says that the writer of Hebrews, uh, for for him to place the words of David in Psalm 40 on the lips of, of Jesus is like Cinderella's glass slipper, which if you'll recall from the story, the slipper didn't fit anybody else but Cinderella. And I want you to know the passage in Psalm 40 doesn't fit anyone else but Jesus. So with that in mind and with the understanding that Jesus is the preexistent, eternal Son of God who, who nevertheless condescended to be born of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, we consider those last words. I want to start there. The last words he says is, I have come to do your will, O God. What is, what is being emphasized here is that when Jesus came into the world, he came with a purpose, and he came knowing why he came. He came with a knowledge and with an understanding of what it was that he was to do when he was sent to this earth. In fact, notice the next hook I have provided for you there on your outline. The next word is the word purpose, and we recognize that Jesus' purpose was that he was born to die. He was born to die. Now, consider first the fact that what we learn about Jesus here cannot be said really of any other person who has ever been born into this world. No baby has ever been born into the world knowing what he or she was born to do. Now, often parents can train their children up and influence them in certain ways so that they can become something special. I, in my mind, I think of Tiger Woods. I think of Tiger's dad, who, who before the age of two years old had a golf club in his hand and was teaching him about golf and was instilling upon him this desire to become the best golfer in the world. And that's exactly who Tiger Woods became for approximately 10 years of his life. And I think of Tiger's dad. I think of countless other parents, grandparents throughout the ages who have looked upon their babies lying in the crib. And, and I think about going in to the room where my, where my baby slept and I'd look at them and watch them sleep and I could just try to imagine in my mind all the things that they would become and, and all the ways that maybe I could help shape their life into becoming something. Maybe, you know, some people look at it and they want the child to follow in the family business. They want a child to become a doctor. Some of them want to become a lawyer or a professional athlete or just, just want them to do something significant with their lives. But here's what I know with all the hoping and with all of the, the attempts and with all the trying and with all of the training and with all the coaching and all the encouragement, ultimately, a child must acquire all of those aspirations and those dreams for themselves if they're ever going to be accomplished. Children are not born with them. They must learn them, and they must embrace them for themselves. And what we know is that many times they don't. Many times they don't want to go the direction that the parents want them to go. They don't want to assume the family business. 
They don't want to go to the same university that the parents went to. They don't want to go into the field that the parents have chosen for them. Many times, the will of the parents and the dreams that they have for their children do not come to pass. That was not the case with Jesus. He was different. He knew his destiny from the beginning. His purpose was not something that he had to acquire through education or through training. Jesus knew that his purpose in being born was so that he could die. How do we know that? Well, the context of what the author of Hebrews has been writing tells us that that is the case. In this passage, the author is contrasting the the burnt offerings and the sacrifices for sins that were commonplace in Israel. And he contrasts all of those blood of bulls and goats with the blood and the ultimate and final sacrifice of Jesus. And verse 5 makes a shocking announcement. It says, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire. That's a shocking statement. You see, for centuries... Jewish priests had offered the blood of of bulls and goats and sheep upon the altar as God had prescribed in the law. And those sacrifices were not wrong because God had instituted them. Nevertheless, they were insufficient. That's what the writer of Hebrews makes clear for us back in verse 4. He says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. In fact, The futility of that practice is is reiterated again by the author down in verse 11. I didn't read that for you, but notice what it says. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. I like how Kent Hughes has put it. I think he's put it in the proper context. He, He writes, the fact was, Though God has instituted blood animal sacrifices, according to Exodus chapter 24, he had established them as object lessons to instruct his people about the sinfulness of their hearts, his hatred of sin, the fact that sin leads to death, the need of an atonement, and his delight in those whose hearts were clean and obedient and faithful. God had no pleasure in the moans and death throes of lambs or bulls. What he did find pleasure in was those who offered a sacrifice with a contrite, obedient heart. Now, it is in the face of that reality that Jesus says here, I have come for a purpose, and that purpose is to do what all of those sacrifices over all of those centuries could never do, and that is to take away sins once and for all. How was he going to do that? Well, notice according to verse 5, we read, but a body you have prepared for me. And what that tells us is that Christ's birth was no afterthought. His body had been prepared for him. It had forethought in mind with regard to how this whole process was going to be taken care of. A body had been prepared so that he himself could become the once for all sacrifice for sin when he would die on the cross. He was born to die. Isaac Watts, you may be familiar with that name. He, he has written many beloved hymns. He wrote, he wrote the hymn, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. He also wrote the hymn that we'll sing 
many times over Christmas, joy to the world. The Lord has come. He wrote another one that you might not be as familiar with. It doesn't have quite the same ring to it. But the title of the hymn is Not All the Blood of Beasts. The words of that hymn, though, capture the essence of what we're talking about this morning. He writes this. He says, not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altar slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sin away, a sacrifice of nobler name, a richer blood than they. What Isaac Watts recognizes, what the writer of Hebrews tells us, which is that the preexistent Christ had a body prepared for him for a specific purpose of dying as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. And it is that thought that allows us to see the next point that I have for you on your outline. It's another P. You'll love those. All of you alliteration fans will love it. The third point is perfection. And what that means is that only Jesus could pay our debt. Only Jesus could do what needed to be done. That's why he's the perfect sacrifice. You see, what the blood of bulls and goats could not do, the Lord Jesus Christ could do because he was the only one who could. We've already noted that as the preexistent Christ, we know that he is God. And because he had a body prepared for him and because he was born of the Virgin Mary, we know that he was also fully human. And that fact is that he is both fully God and fully human is what makes him the perfect sacrifice. It's what makes him the only one who could pay the debt that you and I owe because of our sin. The apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What this verse calls us and and reminds us of is that the mediator is Jesus. He's the one who, my favorite way of representing, you've seen me do it many, many times, my favorite way is he could simultaneously lay his hand on the Godhead because he's fully God, and lay his hand on humanity because he's fully human. And as such, he becomes the mediator between God and man. And he pays for our price of our sin on Calvary's cross. That is why Jesus is the perfect once for all sacrifice. And as such, he is the greatest gift that has ever been given. He is the only one who can make us right before God. Because he is the perfect sacrifice, he alone can pay our debt. He alone has the key to unlock our chains and set us free from sin and from death. John 14 verse 6 makes it clear. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. Acts 4 verse 32, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid in Jesus Christ. So we've seen that in this Christmas story as told to us by by Christ, he has emphasized his preexistence. We've come to recognize that Bethlehem was not the beginning. We've also been made to see his purpose in coming, that he was born to die. And we've been presented with the perfection of his sacrifice because only he could pay our debt. 
Now, there's one last hook that I want to share with you before I close this morning, and the fourth point is just simply this. It's pleasure. It's pleasure. You see, Jesus delighted in doing the will of his Father. He delighted in doing the will of his Father. You may ask, is that possible? Could Jesus really have delighted in going through what he went through? J.M. Boyce, he asked the same question in his commentary on this passage. He said, could Jesus be delighted to come to this earth from glory to lay aside all the privileges and prerogatives that he had enjoyed as the eternal Son of God, to take to himself a human form, to become like us, to become poor, to suffer throughout life, and then eventually to suffer upon the cross and die the death of a sinner, a malefactor, and an evildoer. Could Jesus truly delight in that? And the resounding answer to that question is yes. Yes. I mentioned at the beginning that Verses 5 through 7 is an actual quotation of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, which is a psalm that David attributes to Christ. And and in verse 8 of that psalm, we read these words, I delight to do your will, O my God. Our Lord certainly embodied that quote. Think about what is written of him in John 4, verse 34. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food is. The, the stuff that sustains me is to do the will of him who sent me. A couple of chapters later in John 6, verse 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus delighted in doing the will of his Father to achieve our salvation. His attitude was not as ours sometimes is. Our response is often to look around when we're asked to do something and say, well, is there anybody else that can do it? I mean, maybe y'all don't see that at home. I see that a lot at home. We wait around to see if there's be somebody else who will volunteer. And then if nobody else does, we'll feel guilty. Well, I guess if you can't get anybody else to do it, I guess I will. Aren't you glad that was not the way Jesus approached it? Jesus did not sit back in heaven and say, God, I guess if you don't find anyone else who will go down there and die in their place for their sins, I'll go. No, that is not it at all. He delighted in carrying out the task of giving his life in exchange for yours. Let me say that again. He delighted in the task of giving his life, dying on Calvary's cross. He delighted in giving his life in exchange for yours. I think about what the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. He encourages us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And he says, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, why? Because he's the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It was his joy. It was his delight. It was his pleasure to do the will of the Father. 
So when we take that full context of that picture that's presented for us there in Hebrews 10, that he is the preexistent Christ, that Bethlehem was not the beginning, that his purpose in being born was so that he could die, that he's the perfect sacrifice, the only one who could pay our debt, and that he was pleased and delighted to do the will of his father. That is what was on the mind of Jesus as he came into this world. It peels back for us the curtain and lets us see what was happening in the mind of Christ as he was born. And that is what leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. The Christmas story, according to Christ, is that as the eternal Son of God, he joyfully became flesh and blood to fulfill the will of his Father by dying as the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sinners like us. You want to know what Christmas is according to Christ? There you have it. And listen, I want you to know that's the real meaning of Christmas. As we embark upon this Christmas season, let me me just say first and foremost, that is what Christmas is truly about. Contrary to much of the messaging that we encounter from the world, the real meaning of Christmas is not about Santa Claus and reindeer and, and Christmas trees and unwrapping gifts on Christmas morning. As wonderful as all of those things may be in their own context and in their own place, let me tell you, that is not the meaning of Christmas. All those things may be fine, but if they become the central theme around which our Christmas celebration revolves, then we will have missed the whole point. We will have settled for shadows rather than the real thing, rather than the light of the world who came to save us from the penalty of our sin. Christmas, as I told you at the beginning, is all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. It's all about a Savior and a Redeemer who died on Calvary's cross as the greatest gift ever given to mankind. And here's the most important question for you. Have you received that gift? Have you found the Lord Jesus who came at Christmas to be your Savior? Have you placed your faith and your trust in Him? Phillips Brooks has a, has a carol that he wrote. We sing this at Christmas time as well. O little town of Bethlehem. There's a stanza in that that says this, how silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of His heaven. No ear may hear His coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still. The dear Christ enters in. Do you want to know how to receive the Christmas gift that Christ came to give you? It's in meekness and in humility, bowing yourself before him in faith and repentance. Listen, the gift won't come to you by attempting to clean yourself up, work yourself into a place where you think you become more valuable to God. Christ's gift does not come to those who earn it because no one can. Rather, it is a gift that is reserved for the meek and the lowly of heart, the poor, as Jesus said, of heart, who recognize their unworthiness and yet trust in the blood that Christ has shed for them. The question is, will you do that today? Will you turn from your sins 
will you turn to Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. He joyfully came to give his life in exchange for yours. Will you trust in him? For those of you who have, and that is your testimony, that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that you're a Christian, then let me leave you with this thought. According to the clear understanding of this passage, God does not take pleasure in the sacrifices of burnt offerings and of animals. What God does take pleasure in, however, is the obedience of his people. In fact, it could legitimately be said that obedience is the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God. As one author put it, everything is ashes if we are not living in conscious obedience to God. So in light of that, let me ask you, if your testimony is that you're a follower of Christ, are you living obedient? Is it your joy to do his will? Perhaps I should ask it this way. Are you conscious of something that you need to do but you have not done? Or let me flip it. Are you in the process of doing things that you know you need to stop? The question is, will you do that? Will you begin what you know you need to begin? Will you stop what you know you need to stop? Is it your joy? to do the will of the Father. Because that was the joy of Christ. And if we are Christians, little Christ by definition of the word, if our life is to imitate his, then are you living with that same joy in your life of obedience? I pray that that will be our confession And I pray that as we embark upon this Christmas season, that our lives will give testimony to Jesus Christ, who is the reason for this season. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for this word, and we thank you for how it teaches us about you. But we also are thankful for what it instructs us about ourselves. So, Father, I pray today that if there's one in this room that does not know you, has never trusted in you, has never repented of their sins, has never truly recognized their absolute total need of you, that your Holy Spirit would bring that recognition to their mind today and draw them to you. And I pray, Lord, that that they would humble themselves before you, bow before you in meekness and in humility, place their faith completely and totally in you, turn from their sins and anything else that they have been grabbing onto and trust in you. Let that happen, God, for their good and for your glory, ultimately for your fame and your renown. Father, for those the rest of us in this room that may fully say that you are our Lord and Savior, may we truly grapple, may we wrestle with whether we are living obedient lives to you. Help us to give to you all of those areas that we hold and cherish more than we do you. Bring conviction into our lives about those areas. And help us, Father, to fall on our faces before you in humble obedience to you. This is my prayer, and I pray it in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.